the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Exposure to environmental toxins, medications, and lifestyle factors like stress, excessive alcohol use, and unhealthy diets make sustaining gut balance increasingly important. Today's guest, Dr. William Davis, joins us to talk about how we can reprogram our microbiome to improve our health. Dr. Davis is a cardiologist and author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Wheat Belly. His new book is Super Gut, a four-week plan to reprogram your microbiome, restore health, and lose weight. Welcome, Dr. Davis. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Joan. Thanks for the uh, reinvitation. <laughs> well, Doctor, I, I'm so happy that you accepted because I wanted to do a show about the importance of gut health during and after taking certain medications like antibiotics. Because I've been realizing more and more that most people who take medications have no idea of the impact those drugs have on the body. So. If we've learned anything in recent years, it's how important our gut health is. So let's start off by having a, a basic conversation about what is gut health and, and why is it so important? You know, for years, Joan, we dismissed the microbiome, that is the microbes dwelling in the human gastrointestinal tract. We dismissed it as nothing but a nuisance, this thing that caused diarrhea after you took a course of antibiotics. Now it's become clear with more modern methods of analyzing the species, the uh, types of microbes living in the genetic tract, it has become clear they are absolutely crucial to overall health. And taking antibiotics is a huge, uh, like, like dropping a bomb in a pond. You're going to kill all kinds of things, many of which won't recover. And so we've got to claw our way back to microbiome health. So, Doctor, the word bacteria tends to carry a negative connotation, but it's not all bad. Why is good bacteria so important? because they provide numerous important functions. They influence the dialogue in your head, whether it's a dialogue of hate and, and anger or a dialogue of optimism and happiness. It determines numerous hormonal levels like testosterone, estrogen, oxytocin, and numerous others. And of course, it determines intestinal health, so a disruptive microbiome can be responsible for conditions like ulcerative colitis, or even conditions outside the gastrointestinal tract, like Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's dementia, depression, a big one, Joan, high blood pressure, obesity, type 2 diabetes. In other words, virtually all modern human diseases need to be reconsidered in light of either the contribution of or the start of by the microbiome. When a person is prescribed an antibiotic or certain other medications, and we know it's like a bomb going off and, it, and everything gets wiped out in the gut, what should we be doing to prevent the fallout or the problems that can arise? You know, if, if you must take an antibiotic, and let's face it, sometimes we have no choice. If you must take an antibiotic, the most important thing you can do is, of all kind of odd things, get the fungus, Saccharomyces boulardii. There is very good evidence that this fungus, which is not susceptible to that antibiotic because it's not a bacteria, it's a fungus. It's a cousin, Joan. It's a cousin of Saccharomyces cerevisiae. That's the common fungus used to make beer and wine. Well, this different strain called Saccharomyces boulardii 
cousin of that other yeast is adapted to the human body. And if you get it in sufficient numbers, it protects a lot of the microbes from being killed by that antibiotic. Not 100%, but it's the majority of microbes won't die due to that antibiotic. Now, here's a little twist for you, for your listeners. You can buy it as a commercial probiotic. It's called Florastore in the U.S., other names in other countries. But here's the problem with a lot of probiotic preparations. Because it's very costly to make these things, they put few bacteria in the capsule. So one of the things that I do, especially during the course of antibiotics, is get that capsule, empty it into juice, any juice, apple juice, uh, grape juice, cranberry juice, preferably juice that have a lot of pulp in them, but it must not have any preservatives like potassium sorbate. And then just let it sit on the counter for 48 hours. Leave the cap on very lightly, not tightly. That's very important because within 24 hours, there's going to be so much carbon dioxide produced that if you cap it tightly, it will literally explode. So cap it lightly, and in 48 hours, you have huge counts of Saccharomyces boulardii, and you sip a quarter cup several times a day to limit your sugar. The process of fermentation does reduce the sugar by about half, but there is still is some sugar, so to minimize your exposure to sugar, small servings quarter, maybe half cup, several times a day. That's the most important, most powerful thing you can do to preserve your microbiome during antibiotics. But you're doing that with one capsule? So one capsule in any volume of juice, uh, a quart, a gallon, doesn't matter. And then you make, once you make that after 48 hours fermentation, you can make another batch from a little bit of that prior batch. So you buy the probiotic just once, and if you keep on going, you'll have this juice for as long as you want. What I don't understand, Dr. Davis, we know what happens in the gut when you take antibiotics or certain medication. When a doctor prescribes a prescription, why don't they give you another sheet of paper that says, while you're taking this, you need to do this? They should. Unfortunately, modern healthcare takes about 20 years on average to catch up to the science. So that's why doctors, even today, will say things like probiotics don't work. Uh, did you consult Dr. Google? All those kinds of things I'd like to say. When the truth of it is that the science has advanced dramatically and it's continuing to advance daily. It's that fast. It's changing so quickly and there are huge insights into health. But unfortunately, you can't get that information from your doctor. That's why people have to listen to shows like yours to get the real cutting edge information. I should mention another strategy in the way of probiotics is lots of different species and strains have been looked at for restoring a healthy microbiome. So there are a handful that have been proven effective. The standout is Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG strain. Now, one of the things we have to do is pay attention to strain. Because some strains do it, some strains don't. In this case, it's Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG strain. That is by far the most important. You can take it during a course of antibiotics. You just want to separate them. In other words, if you take your antibiotic at 7 a.m., don't take the probiotic for at least several hours so you don't kill off all the microbes. And you have to continue this for at least several weeks after you finish your antibiotics. And I wanted to do this show because I am having experience personally right now with my son who has to take antibiotics. And when I contacted the pharmacist, I knew the answers to the questions that I was about to ask her. And I was really blown away by the answers she had given. I asked that specific question. If you're taking a probiotic with an antibiotic, how do you space it out? And her response was, oh, it doesn't matter. You can take it whenever. So that really made me nervous because I, I think I know a little bit more than the average person, but I really felt badly for people who don't know anything about this with the information they're being given. Sadly, Joan, it's true of pharmacists. It's true of doctors. It's true of nearly everyone in healthcare. There, there, thankfully, there are people in functional medicine, uh, 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 alternative care. They, they are keeping abreast of the science, but it is challenging because it is coming out at us at such breakneck speed that you have to make it a point to keep up with the science of the microbiome. But the good thing about this, Joan, is that the wisdom is growing very rapidly. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that in just a few years, when we have a condition like obesity or type 2 diabetes or migraine headaches, the first thing we're going to do is address the microbiome. If someone were to take a probiotic, you mentioned a, a good one, it, should they be taking one that is multiple strains and should it have a minimum of 10 billion? You make a good point. 
So no one's worked out what the perfect probiotic looks like. The closest I know are two, and I have no relationship with these companies. There's one called Equilibrium that's made from human uh, microbes, over 100 different species and strains. There's another product called Sugar Shift that, uh, in, in preliminary experience, reduces blood sugar, but does far more than that because the microbiologist, Dr. Raul Kennel, who's a friend of mine, formulated this collection of microbes because they collaborate. And when microbes collaborate, they have far bigger effects. In this case, reduction of blood sugar and other benefits. Most other commercial probiotics are kind of haphazard collections of this species and that species. In coming years, we will have much more effective probiotics. But so to, to kind of amplify the benefits of getting a probiotic, one of the best things people can do is to get fermented foods. Beyond the Saccharomyces boulardii fermented juices, you can ferment all kinds of things, vegetables, yogurts, kefirs, vegetables on your kitchen counter, uh, sauerkraut, provided it's fermented, kimchi, and numerous other fermented foods that provide important microbes to your GI tract. And that really helps. Now, were those known as prebiotics? So prebiotics are things that microbes consume or metabolize. So these are things like the fibers in onions and garlic or legumes. So the FOS inulin is the prebiotic fiber in, say, an onion. It's the galacto-oligosaccharide prebiotic fiber in legumes, like black beans and chickpeas. And so these are the things that microbes consume, the polysaccharides and mushrooms. These are things that nourish microbes. But when you nourish microbes, they do wonderful things for you. They produce metabolites, like butyrate, that heal and nourish the intestinal bacteria. So we've been talking about antibiotics and what it does to the gut. Are there other medications that are commonly taken that can do a similar type damage? Tons. Not quite as severe as antibiotics, but common drugs, Joan, stomach acid blocking drugs, the uh, H2 blockers like ranitidine, it's dimetidine, the PPIs like um, uh, uh, protonics and uh, Asifex disrupt the microbiome, anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen and naproxen, Statin cholesterol drugs, birth control pills, on and on and on. Unfortunately, a lot of drugs we don't know if they have a microbiome uh, consequence because it's not part of the FDA application to investigate the impact in the microbiome. I suspect in coming years and decades that will become a requirement because it's so important. But right now, there's not a requirement. So we often don't know about other drugs, but there's a long list that we know impact the microbiome. Is there a contraindication to taking a probiotic with any of these drugs? The only contraindication is somebody who is severely immunocompromised, someone who's currently on cancer chemotherapy or has um, a real low white count. These are fairly obvious situations. But everyday people going to work, going to school, uh, don't have to worry about consequences of probiotics. So, Doctor, what else do you want us to know about maintaining a healthy gut? Joan, how important it is to get these fermented foods. You know, we forgot because when home refrigeration became a thing in 1927, 1928, with Frigidaire's uh, discovery of Freon as a refrigerant, we all forgot that these fermented foods that we thought were, you know, that were essential for human health, we started seeing as rotten. But they're actually healthier for you. And they're delicious also. So adding back fermented foods, learning how. And you can do this. You can go online and see tons and tons of information on how to ferment vegetables, for instance. It's also in my books, all my books, like Superget. It's very easy. It's virtually no cost. And it's one of the most healthy practices you can engage in. Doctor, if we don't follow your advice and take a probiotic or eat fermented foods when doing a course of medication or taking a different medication... When the person is done, will the gut eventually heal by itself? Typically not, sadly, Joan, because if you lose, let's say you lose 50 species from that drug, you can't grow them back. In other words, if you have a garden, the only way you get tomatoes is to plant tomatoes. You can't get tomatoes just by looking at it, right? It doesn't generate out of the air. And so you have to purposely rebuild your microbiome. Unfortunately, it's gotten to a kind of a, a really bad tipping point in modern people because from generation to generation, there's been a deterioration in the microbiome. So your grandparents passed on a flawed, a devastated microbiome to, their, to your parents, who then in turn passed on to you. And with each generation, each passing generation, there's deterioration of the composition and loss of microbial species. 
But the great thing is, wonderful things can happen when you identify some of those species and restore them. So you and I have talked about how we restore, for instance, my favorite microbe in the world, Lactobacillus rotari, that nearly everybody has lost. But when you restore it, there's a surge in oxytocin levels, and you experience empathy for other people. You understand other people's points of view. Ladies love it because it smooths their skin wrinkles. Guys love it because it restores youthful muscle and strength. I love it because it gives me deep sleep for a chronic insomniac, accelerated healing, and all kinds of other. That's just one micro chunk. You know, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about our children. Every time they go to the pediatrician for any type of a cold or ear infection or whatever it is, they're automatically prescribed an antibiotic. What are we doing to these kids? If these, if these bacteria are gone and they don't come back on their own, how, how are we damaging our children? Oh, there's no question we are damaging children. One great example, not, I shouldn't say great, one terrible example, is the loss of a species called Bifidobacteria insanthus. So infants who don't have this don't grow properly. They don't have normal neurological maturation. They're more prone to asthma, type 1 diabetes, and other autoimmune conditions. They are more likely to become obese as older kids, type 2 diabetes, and they have a lower IQ. So you can reverse this. So a mother can reverse this by supplying Bifidobacter infantis to the child because the first year of life is very unique. Bifidobacter infantis comprises 80 to 90% of the entire microbiome in a child, in a baby. So not having it is a major deficit for that child's development. So it's an example of how destructive things have gotten, but how much power you have when you understand some of these basic issues and take action. You know how difficult kids are with what you can get them to eat or, or take. Is there a product or is there some way that you can recommend getting this into a child in a way that he or she will accept it? So the way it's done, and the people at University of California, Davis, have done some very elegant work to validate all this. But it's commercial, commercialized as a product called Evivo, E-V-I-V-O, and it's supplied as a powder that a nursing mother can mix with breast milk and then feed her child. Now, I've, I've suggested to my audience that let's go one step better. What if mom, during pregnancy, before delivery, makes a yogurt or other fermented food with that microbe, consumes the yogurt or other food, and then she populates her vagina and her breast, breast milk, with this microbe and passes the microbe on the child at birth and during breastfeeding the way it was supposed to. You can still continue to feed it through breast milk, but at least you've given the baby this microbe in the context of the mother's broader microbiome. And I've been seeing wonderful results with this. Dr. Davis's book is Supergut, a four-week plan to reprogram your microbiome, restore health, and lose weight. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Davis and his work, you can visit drdavisinfinitehealth.com. That's D-R, drdavisinfinitehealth.com. Doctor, I want to thank you so much for accepting this invitation at the last minute, and thank you for being such a light and for being passionate about helping all of us. Oh, thank you, Joan. I'm always happy to come back on your show. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Life is messy, there's no doubt about it. But according to today's guest, Cy Wakeman, being happy is not about cleaning up the mess around you. It's about learning how to move through obstacles more skillfully. She's here today to talk about how to change the level of contentment you feel in your life by learning to disconnect happiness 
from external forces. Sai is an international leadership speaker, consultant, and founder of Reality-Based Leadership. Her new book is Life's Messy, Live Happy. Things don't have to be perfect for you to be content. Welcome, Sai. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited about our conversation. So, Sai, things don't have to be perfect. That is such great advice for so many of us. We strive for perfection, and when things don't go as planned, we can really unravel. Do you believe that perfection is a myth? Absolutely a myth, and it's just unattainable. And so we're, like, chronically disappointing ourselves in ourselves and in others when we set that as a goal, and worse, we defer happiness. And unless we reflect on this, you know, what we do a lot is I'll be happy when this is a better situation. I'll be happy when I retire or when my job is different. Or we spend so much of our time and energy trying to get the world in a state of perfection. And ah, then we can be happy. But unfortunately, we might find we've deferred our happiness so long that we've lost such valuable time. And the reality is you could be happy right now. If you just realize that life is going to be always, you know, messy and that the goal isn't perfection, but a goal can be knowing how to move through the mess, as you said, skillfully. Yeah, you know, I am guilty of being this person for many years. I mean, for most of my life, I wanted everything to be so neat and tidy the way it was supposed to be. And it really took a major upheaval in my life for me to understand that things don't work out as they're quote-unquote supposed to be, and that you need to accept all of these changes in order to learn from them and move forward. And we need to, um, you know, not be chronically surprised when they come. I think our expectations, if we can remove from our life living with expectations and instead live with great expectancy, that we just expect life will be full of wonderful surprises and we'll end up where we need to end up and we'll be good. But it's the expectations that get us externally focused, trying to keep all the plates spinning, trying to keep all the people happy, performing, and really abandoning ourselves so that we're not abandoned by others. And when you do all this performing, you start to wonder, do people even like me for who I am? Because they don't even really know me. They just know you know, this perfect little view I've presented to the world, and we start feeling really lonely because it's hard to um, connect with people when you aren't being honest about the many messy areas in your life. That's really where we connect with human beings. I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the years from doing this work is that happiness is an inside job because, you know, I've met people who have stories that they would have every reason in the world to be miserable and to be unhappy. And yet they find joy despite their circumstances. And then you meet other people who have every reason to be happy and yet they're miserable. And so uh, I agree with, you know, what you're saying. It is an inside job. We have to find it from within ourselves. Absolutely true. So many of us outsource our well-being. We wake up in the morning and we go, how do I feel? Let me check the news. Oh, I feel unhappy. Instead of let me check myself. I'm happy. I believe the universe is kind. Now let me check the news. What can I do to help? It's very, very different. And it's proof that if it were just external circumstances, then people who had better lives would be happier and people who didn't would be less happy. And it just does not play play out that way. Um, and it's also not about like toxic positivity or spiritual bypassing, just I'm going to ignore the mess and and pretend to be happy. It is truly finding some radical acceptance for some days are like that and having um, skills that you can um, maintain kind of a spirit of contentment um, in the mess. Life happens in the mess. I used to, even when I did my inner work, I used to go, okay, I'm going to not be in a relationship for a long time and I'm going to do all my inner work and I'm going to get myself great and I'm going to go out and have a relationship and we won't have any issues. And that just never worked out that well. I couldn't go out in life and pass the test no matter how hard I prepared because part of going out in the mess is willing to be vulnerable and just saying, you know, when two or more people are brought together, we will have some messiness to hold space for and to be curious about. And so instead of trying to get your life perfect, what if you cultivated curiosity and walked with curiosity? That's more helpful in the mess than, you know, um, trying to prepare 
so that when the mess happens, you'll be perfect. Like it's really shaping yourself so that you're more capable of being in the mess but unaffected by the mess. It all comes down to the way you choose to see it. I mean, I, I totally believe that this is a choice. And I love when you say there are two ways to go through each day, joy or misery. And at each experience, we need to make the choice. We have the power to make that choice. We really do. And I want to be really clear that um, the choice is about how long we suffer. Pain is inevitable. We will have losses. We will have injury. We will have insult. We will have disappointment. Um, But pain is momentary. The suffering part is more about the story we create and how long we hold on to the pain. And that's where the choice um, the choice is, you know, it's, it's, um, something can happen in your day. Let's say someone walks by me on the street and said something that I think most people would find, um, kind of mean that took one minute out of my day. And it was, it was, you know, painful, um, as I received it. Now I have a choice of what I'm going to do with the next four hours of my day. Am I going to think about it consistently and question myself? And am I going to talk about it and tell other people about it? Like that person maybe took a minute for me, but I'm the one that gave them the next four hours. And then I can even limit my pain. When someone says something that I could find insulting, I can say my choices, they can call me that, that I can decide whether that was meant for me. I can decide whether I received that. And once you get to that life, you start to really see where so much of the suffering you think you're enduring, you were self-creating. Right. And it goes back to, like you said before, having expectations for the way things are supposed to be. You know, that person wasn't supposed to say something mean or this wasn't supposed to happen. And we get caught up in that. Absolutely. A lot of us don't experience reality as it really is. We experience reality as the gap from how we wanted it to be. And we mourn the gap when, you know, the reality just is never as harsh as we imagine. And there are techniques that you can learn to move through life more skillfully. And one of the techniques I teach a lot is just stop believing everything you think. Question your own story. Question your own thinking. Edit edit your story. You know, um, let's say I'm standing in line at the DMV to renew my license. And when I finally get the counter the gentleman says we're closing for the day here's the time you could come back and we could help you all that's really happened is he's let me know when i can return to get my license renewed that's it my ego makes it into this person's trying to ruin my entire life and they are out to get me and this is absolutely ridiculous and then underserved throughout the government system well now all of a sudden i'm downtrodden and live in the repressive system or I could just come back tomorrow when he told me to get my license renewed. That suffering part is optional. There's a little pain in having to come back. Not my favorite. But the suffering we add to that is mind-boggling at times when we take what happens and we add a story to it. And I find this with people at work all the time. I work a lot in healthcare. And I'll go onto a unit and I'll say, hey, how, how are you doing? They're like, oh, my gosh, it's crazy. It's just it's ridiculous. It's horrible. And, and like, no, really... I see you're busy and you're staffed for that level of busyness. So you're busy. And it's like, no, it's crazy. And I'm like, well, how did it go from busy to crazy? And people inevitably will say, like, I added that part. And I'm like, well, is it helpful? Be very careful to what you add to your reality every single day, because that's the part that chips away at your natural state of happiness. So we're almost out of time, but very quickly, can you give us a daily practice that you recommend that can help us stay happy and positive? Oh, there's so many in the book, but absolutely. One of my favorites has to do with gratitude. And a lot of us know how to practice gratitude by naming the things we're grateful for. So we're good at counting blessings. I encourage you in the book to count everything as a blessing, and that takes more work. So there's two lists everything that happens in my life today and the list of the things I'm grateful for. And I look at the gap. What happens that I'm not yet willing to put on my gratitude list? That's where my growth is. Is something in my life I'm rejecting that I should be receiving that's here to teach me? Is there something in my life that I don't have good perspective on? I think it's disastrous. But 10 years from now, I'll probably see that it was in my favor. Like helping you take what happened in your day and become grateful for it 
live with gratitude for all of it is one of the key practices that I put in the book that I think will be helpful. The book is Life's Messy, Live Happy. Things don't have to be perfect for you to be content. If you'd like to get more information about Cy and her work, you can visit realitybasedleadership.com. Cy, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, but only if you make a good impression. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills. To learn more, visit CYACYL.com slash media training. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Today, perhaps more than ever, lies about faith and politics are everywhere. Many people push their own narrative and perspective, which creates fear and confusion. Then we get stuck and don't know how to move forward. Today's guest, Jeannie Nigro, joins us to discuss how we can face these turbulent times with confidence and a renewed sense of purpose. Jeannie is the author of the book, The Lies We Believe About Faith and Politics, The Way Forward. She's a speaker and author who has a background that spans the corporate, ministry, and political worlds. She's the founder of Jeannie Nigro Ministries and was a congressional candidate from New York City. Jeannie is also the author of the book, Unshaken, Standing Strong in Uncertain Times. Welcome, Jeannie. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Jim. So, Jeannie, you've worked in the corporate world and you've been part of the political world. What led you to start a ministry? Well, I wanted to impact people's lives. And when I was working in the corporate world, I was just changing the behaviors of organizations and helping organizations to to perform better. And so I just have a, have that heart to help people break free from the lies they're believing about themselves and about God and, and to be all that God created them to be. So from your experience in those diverse areas, what do you believe are the biggest problems we face today? Well, I think when you think about faith and politics and, um, and then even in the corporate world, I think that there's so much fear. You know, there's fear, there's division, there's anger, and I think that, you know, a lot of it stems from uh, lies that we believe about ourselves and about God, you know, that um, instead of us and where he's going, I think we end up doing what we're doing, whether it's in faith or politics, um, you know, driven by things like fear and stress and control. And when we do that, it just ends up with, uh, with a lot of division. So you just said that we believe lies about ourselves. What do you think some of those lies are? I think that um, some of those lies, Joan, are are lies such as, you know, I'm on my own, I'm all alone, I have to prove that I have worth, you know, I have to prove myself, um, I'm bad, I'm not good enough, all those types of lies, sometimes, you know, driving our behavior, driving us into fear, into anger and control, and, um, and they also really impact how we see God and how we think He sees us. Your book is about faith and politics. So you just said some of these lies that we believe about ourselves, that we're alone and and we don't have anyone. How do those lies tie then into politics? How does that manipulate us? The whole arena of politics, I was writing it in response to what I was hearing people say. You know, what what can I do? What can I do to make a difference? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to hide? Am I supposed to fight? You know, everybody's wondering, you know, what do I do with my fear? And and just a lot of uncertainty. And uh, I think sometimes that, uh, many times we get, we want to do the right thing. We want to fight for freedom or we want to fight for righteousness or we want to fight for our country, you know, whatever it might be. But we do it out of, like I said, these lies. And so what, we're doing it out of fear. We're doing it out of stress. We're doing it out of um, control or anger. And, and that's where these lies link in. I know it's just kind of a, when we think about lies, it's so easy to look at what are the lies of the media, what are the lies of the government, but sometimes it's harder to take a look at. First, you know, we have got to start with us. You know, and if we're um, asking God to show us what lies we're believing and we're doing with that, then we can better um, go forward and really make it where God's going in, in freedom and truth and life and not acting out of our own issues or out of our own lives, rather. When we don't believe in a higher power or we don't see that power in our lives and we don't believe in ourselves, 
we're really left floundering out there and, and we're vulnerable to being manipulated. Absolutely. You know, we um, we don't have discernment. Like I said, we can be manipulated. We're, we're hearing all these messages. You know, we just really don't know, how, you know, know what to believe and what not to believe. And then we, um, you know, we either hide or we opposite, you know, maybe get so in, engaged where we're fighting, 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 um, but really not making a difference for God. And I think, you know, when I, I was just preparing for this interview and thinking, you know, what is the main point that I want to get across? And I think in this book, and it's really that, you know, whatever we do, and it's specifically politics here, but whatever we do, if we align with, you know, who God is and, and where he's going, he's He's free. You know, he's for restoration. He's for freedom. He's for life and filling the purpose that he has for us. When we're aligning with those goals or, or principles, you know, then we can um, we can be effective and we can make a difference. But when we are acting out of I would call it negative emotions, you know, such as anger, control, or fear, then um, we just um, end up making things just end up getting worse, and we all end up being, you know feeling more of the effects of that with the division, with the confusion, with with the anger. Yeah, like you said, you wrote about politics, but what you teach relates to everything in our lives. Absolutely, because when we uh, align with again, when I say a lot of um, what I talk about in the book in terms of politics is that we have to be acting out of a place of intimacy with God. And many times people say, well, what in the world does intimacy with God mean? You know, and, and to me, it means seeing what he sees, you know, feeling what he feels. And it starts with us, seeing what he sees about us. And when we see ourselves like God sees us, um, then we act a lot differently than when we see ourselves out of condemnation or shame or um, failure. And, you know, oftentimes we, um, we're trying to compensate for those things. And, and if we really take a look at wait a minute, this is not how God sees us. This is not how God sees this other person. You know, when we're dealing with politics, we, you know, have a right, obviously, to, I call it bash the issue, bash the policy, but we don't bash the people. You know, that's not God's heart towards other people. They might have a different opinion. They might be doing something we don't agree with, but we want to have God's heart toward whatever we're doing. And especially in politics, we want to see it as he sees it. We want to have his heart. Jeannie, you know, as well as I do, that a lot of people are struggling with that intimacy with God today. It's just, you know, the world we're living in. So mm-hmm. if someone wants to redevelop that relationship, how can he or she go about doing it? I think, as I mentioned, um, one way I define intimacy with God is just seeing what he sees, you know, feeling what he feels, thinking what he thinks about ourselves, about situations. And, and so I ask God all throughout the day, you know, Lord, Lord, help me see this person like you do, you know, or help me to see my like you do, because I'm feeling shame right now, or I'm feeling I'm just bad right now, or a loser, you know, whatever. So it can start with just asking God to um, to show us those things. And then the other part, Joan, is that I don't think sometimes that we realize all of the emotions and thoughts that really block us from listening to God. So, you know, stress, for example, we think, well, that's just a normal part of life, but actually stress blocks that from listening to God. You know, fear does, um, anger does, unforgiveness does. So, I always ask God to show me, you know, what's blocking, you know, what lies am I believing that is um, blocking my intimacy with you? You know, am I believing that um, you're not with me, that you're just watching, that you're mad at me, that you're, um, you know, waiting for me to get it right, uh, agree, you know, you're siding with the other person. We have all these things, yeah, some really block intimacy that we don't realize. And, and the, the good thing about God is that when you ask him to show you, he's always faithful to show you. And the important thing is, you know, we're all good at talking to or at God, but you have to listen and you have to watch. And, and like you said, you know, when we're living in this constant state of stress, you don't find God because you find him in the peace, you know. So you're right. We we need to spend more time listening in quiet. Absolutely. Just a you know, conversation with God. You know, I think sometimes uh, we can have a view of God almost here messing up and he's just looking at us going, oh, my God, I can't believe you blew it again, you know. And it's the opposite. He, he delights in having a relationship with us. He loves having relationships, having conversations. So if you think about what do you do with um, uh, a friend who you want to have a relationship with? Do you get together for coffee? Do you talk? You know, you have conversation. And it's really um, not so different with God. He, we have to have a conversation with him. And, and um, the fact that he's a right in having a conversation with us, that he really wants to have a relationship, a conversation with us, makes it easy because all we have to do is ask. 
The book is The Lies We Believe About Faith and Politics, The Way Forward. If you'd like to learn more about Jeannie and her work, you can visit JeannieNigroMinistries.com. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joan. It's great to be on the show. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Self-confidence stemming from a belief in your worth, in your abilities, is a prerequisite to achievement. Your current view of yourself is the result of prior unconscious conditioning. Your future view of yourself can be the result of positive conditioning you consciously design. Affirmations are a powerful tool you can utilize to enhance your self-confidence and positive thinking. Your future success will be determined mainly by what you permit to enter and remain in your mind. Enhance your capabilities to achieve your goals by intentionally feeding your mind positive statements describing the person you want to be or become. Affirmations should describe which qualities, achievements, behaviors, or circumstances you want to possess. You can create your own affirmations or adopt them from quotations, scripture, family sayings, or other positive sources. If you use borrowed affirmations, make sure they align with your purpose and values. Affirmations should always be personal and a reflection of your goals. Here are six key points of what affirmations need in order to be effective. One, positive. Two, stated in the first person or present tense. Three, in the realm of your belief. Four, something you want to become rather than something you currently are. Five, related to your goals. And six, specific to you. If you'd like to learn more, contact me, Bertha Robinson at 732-705-5060 or visit staronprofessional.com. Put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done, and you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Thanks for staying with us. According to a recent report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office, 48% of Americans age 55 and older have no money in either an IRA or 401k-style account, and 29% have no pension or retirement savings accounts. Financial security in retirement requires that you will be able to live off your savings, investments, and Social Security benefits. But how many Americans are concerned that these retirement assets will not sufficiently cover their living expenses? And how can they bridge this retirement savings gap? Joining me today to discuss this growing problem and to offer actionable advice is award-winning personal finance journalist Jean Chatsky. Jean is a financial editor of NBC's Today Show and host of the podcast Her Money. Her new book is Women With Money. Welcome, Jean. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jean, let's start off by talking about this report. What did the report find regarding the retirement savings gap? So the folks at AARP conducted a survey and found about 60% of people believe they have a retirement savings gap. And just to define that, it basically means that when you combine your Social Security with your investments and your savings, you're not going to have enough to sustain the life that you want to live in retirement. More women feel that they've got a gap than men. But either way you look at it, it's a very large number, and it means we need to take some steps to start closing that gap. So people recognize the fact that they had a gap. Were they concerned about this? Oh, completely concerned. Um, about half of all men are very worried about this, and, and significantly more women. Jean, why do you believe so many people are not financially prepared for retirement? Well, if you ask them, they'll tell you that they just don't have enough money to save based on the money they earn, that unexpected expenses crop up and get in their way. But if you look historically at what's been going on, you know, over the last 25 years, we've transitioned from a system where many, many people had pensions to a system where we've got 401ks, we've got IRAs, we are responsible for saving for and 
investing for retirement ourselves. And with the number of people now who the growing number of people who are working for themselves who are freelancing a lot of people don't have those work-based retirement plans so they're at a loss to get started it's important to understand how much of the responsibility to do this is on us so because we are responsible for our own financial health what do you believe are some of the biggest mistakes we may make along the way again we say the biggest mistakes that we make according to this research is not starting soon enough. But that doesn't mean that you should not start at all. The the best day to start is today, and the way to do it is with automatic contributions into a retirement savings account. If you've got a 401k at work and you're not maxing out, you want to get yourself to the point where you are maxing out. If you don't have a 401k, then you want to open an IRA or a Roth IRA or a SEP IRA and start funding it every single month with automatic contributions because if you pay yourself first in this way, you're not going to spend that money and it will have an opportunity to grow for your retirement. And I think a lot of it is a mindset as well. I'm the product of depression babies and my parents had a very different philosophy about money and saving. Do you think a lot of this is also because so many live outside of their means? Absolutely. I think we have gotten to the point where spending money is way too easy to do. And all of the technological innovations, Venmo, credit, debit, Amazon and one-click ordering, they've all made it very, very easy to spend. My philosophy has always been save first. You know, make sure that you're checking off that box, that you've got emergency savings, that you've got long-term savings. And then whatever's left, you can choose how to allocate that for your wants and for your needs. I think I'm a dinosaur gene because I actually like the feel of money in my hands. I like to know what's going in and going out. And and as you said, when it's also digital, it's just too easy to let it go out. It it is. And there's a lot of research on this that shows that we spend much more quickly with credit and with debit and with Venmo than we do with cash. So if as adults, we're having our own issues financially, what then should we be doing to get our kids ready, to get them better prepared? Well, we should be having our kids save 10 to 15 percent of what it, whatever it is they're bringing in. Um, from the time that they're young until the time that they grow up, my, my kids are just out of college and, and they know this is what they have to do from the start of their working career all the way to the end of it. But it's also not too late to help ourselves. We've got some great tools at AARP. If you go to aceyourretirement.org, you will find a tool that will ask you a few very easy questions to answer and then give you a personalized plan to close your own retirement savings gap. You can also get a handle on your Social Security claiming strategy, which is very important for pretty much everybody by going to aarp.org slash social security. And I've got a new podcast that I developed with AARP where we took some real women and matched them with financial advisors to help them close their personal savings gaps. And you can find that at aarp.org slash closing the gap. Jean, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing this advice. I mean, retirement really can be the best time of our life with just a little bit of planning. So thank you. My pleasure. Recently, I was flipping through a toy catalog, shopping for a gift for a French child, when I stumbled upon an item that had brought hours of enjoyment to my children. It's a square box that has different shapes cut out into each side with matching pieces. The goal of the toy is for children to fit each piece into its corresponding hole, thus learning to recognize shapes and how to fit like things together. My boys spent hours placing the various shapes into their respective holes. Most times, the pieces fit together with ease, but on occasion, they would work tirelessly trying to make the wrong piece fit into the wrong hole, an oval in a circle, a square in a triangle, a rectangle in a square. As I reminisced about them sitting on the floor working at this task, I began to think about how this activity mimics what we do throughout our life, work to make the pieces fit. Hi, this is Joan Herman, here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Sometimes our choices fit perfectly, but other times, no matter how much energy we expend, they just don't fit. How many times have you been in a friendship or romance that didn't work out? 
In most situations when the breakup occurred, anger, heartbreak, and disappointment soon followed. Then blame. Someone must be at fault. Someone was wrong. You tried so hard, so why couldn't it survive? Instead of being consumed with anger and resentment, did you ever stop and think that maybe, just maybe, it was simply a wrong fit and that no one is to blame? Like the pieces in the toy, each of us has an individual design derived from life experiences. We are each as unique as a circle, square, triangle, or octagon. When we make the right match, everything fits perfectly. But when we have the wrong pieces, it doesn't work, no matter how hard we push or on what angle. It would be ridiculous to say something is wrong with the circle because it didn't fit in the square. We recognize the shapes as being different, so why do we make those claims about people? Why do we assign blame to a person and then spend the rest of our life being angry and resentful, thinking about what could have been? Perhaps a new perspective would be to view each of us as the pieces of the toy, unique with our own characteristics, perfect in our design, but not always a fit, no matter how hard we try to squeeze it together and how much we want it. Perhaps looking at life experiences in this way may make it easier to let go and stop assigning blame. It may enable us to forgive and move forward. So the next time you experience the loss of a valued relationship, rather than being consumed with anger and bitterness, just release it. Try to view yourself and the other person as shapes, different from each other, but with their own purpose, beauty, and value. Perfect in their individuality, but they just don't fit. Thanks for spending these minutes with me. For more information and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.